So today's passage is uh, from Luke chapter 18. Um, we do, we will have the uh, words on the board, but uh, if you have your Bibles, I'll again invite you to open up to Luke chapter 18. As he drew near to Jericho, that is Jesus, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what it meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But the blind man cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. And when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Now, it's kind of a strange thing to prepare for preaching or prepare a sermon. At least for me, my experience is it kind of sits in you. You kind of think about what is going on over the course of the whole week. You're thinking about this passage and then you have conversations with people throughout the week and, and stuff comes to your mind. So I was talking to my daughter, my daughter Melody, about the sermon. And, and she, if you don't know her, she is sweet. All three of my daughters are super special and sweet. And Melody was encouraging me and she's all, Dad, this is a great story. The blind man gets healed. This is wonderful. And you know the story. And yes, it's wonderful. But if that's all you hear, then you're losing the tension. You're losing part of what's going on. You see, we live in a world and in a time that is not fair. Decay, brokenness, and suffering are all around us. From the death of a loved one, or the loss of your sight, or the despair and cries of a parent, all of these things and more are the effects of the fall. We know from Genesis 3 that when Adam took just a bite, that the whole world was to come to the cursing and the condition of sin. There is not a place on earth that is able to hide and flee from decay, brokenness, and suffering. The good news is that God is keenly aware of our condition, and he is not far from you. And he invites, invites all of us to cry out to him for help. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that you would open our eyes to this passage that we would look upon your word and be changed. I pray that you would bless this time and use it to draw us deeper into a place of faith and into a deeper place of worship. May your name be glorified. Amen. 
Now, before we get going, I do have a few observations from this text and actually from the Bible as a whole. Whenever the Bible talks about blindness, there's usually a reference or a placeholder to a spiritual condition of blindness. And that's also in this story. The next observation, and if you're taking notes in, in your margins of, of, a, of a Bible or a book, the second observation is that the blind man was strategically placed on a main road that led to Jerusalem. He was in a place that he could ask for help from any number of people that could pass on a given day. The next observation is that the crowd serves as a type of obstacle to grace. My last observation is that some in the crowd who were with Jesus had the expectation that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem as the conquering Messiah. They assumed that Jesus would go into Jerusalem, would overthrow the Roman rule, and sit upon a a throne that was in some way similar to King David many centuries prior. So... There's a sense of urgency in the air, a sense that things must be done and swiftly, a sense of expectation and excitement that Jesus was going to do something amazing, amazing, historical in its nature and life-changing in its purpose that would benefit the nation of Israel. Could anything compare to the size and scope, its grand scale that was awaiting Jesus in that ancient capital of Jerusalem? People didn't know, but they had their agenda for what Jesus was going to do. So that is the context that we meet this man. And in verse 35, we know exactly what type of man he is. He's blind. He's a beggar. And if you were to put him on a sliding scale in order of importance, I wonder where you would put him. Luke seems to indicate that his name was not really that important. Luke seems to indicate that he was not out front. He just happened to place himself on a main road. Now, Luke does not even tell us how long this man had been blind or what caused the blindness. But we can surmise that the blindness had made it nearly impossible for him to find any work. And day after day, this man had to position himself on that well-traveled road asking for alms. Now, although his eyes had failed him, we also read in this text that his hearing was still somewhat acute, and it had to be. His ears had to pick up when someone was coming by, and I'm sure with a blind man's gesture, he would hold out his hands asking for alms. Please, please do something for me. And his ears would hear sometimes people walking right on by without receiving 
a token of his request. With his vision gone, it became more important for him to rely upon his hearing so that he could indeed hold out his hands in search of grace. And in verse 36, if, if your Bible is open, you can look back on that again with me. And hearing that this great crowd was coming by, he inquired what this meant. So he was fully aware that something spectacular was going on. And they replied to him, Jesus of Nazareth was coming by. Now, the crowd, they're not really quick to offer any grace or mercy. They did, however, give him a correct answer. Jesus was indeed from Nazareth. That was a place where he grew up. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it also lets us know that Jesus was somehow well-known. You could say the name, which Jesus was a very common name in that time, but of Nazareth, let people know, oh, yes, no, I've, I've heard rumors about him. And by now, this is nearing the end of his ministry on earth. So by now, people, oh, yeah, he healed that um, withered hand on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, he, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he did that amazing sermon on the mount. So what they said was correct. And there were many people in that region that knew Jesus and of his miraculous healings. And I'm confident, too, that the blind man knew that, too, right? Why else would he not be kind of excited that Jesus was coming by. And yes, Jesus did walk by. And so the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It is important to see that the blind man did not call him Jesus of Nazareth, just as the crowd did. The blind man used a title, Jesus, son of David. This title, Son of David, was familiar to many in that historical context, and I think that it's of great importance. Um, now, as I was preparing, I looked at, I looked at a number of different um, resources to help me um, prepare and study, and, and they all emphasize the fact that this man cried, and he cried out, but I think it was also significant that he was able to distinguish Jesus and his title. In Luke's gospel, there was no other man that mentioned that title, Jesus of Nazareth. I went back and I saw it early in Luke chapter 1. And this was not a man, but this was the angel Gabriel as the angel was speaking to the Virgin Mary. So the angel said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
So I think it's remarkable the fact that this man who was blind somehow spiritually had a connection to the historical place and importance of Jesus, but also to the fact that Jesus had an eternal throne. Now, we do um, teach covenant theology in here. We do know it and celebrate it. Covenant theology is an is a, um, emphasis that God makes a promise with his people. And that promise continues throughout the generations. Now, God gave a promise, a very important promise to David. So when this blind beggar refers to Jesus as being the son of David, he knows the context as it's found in the Old Testament. And I'll turn back and look at here with you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Jesus, I'm sorry, God was speaking to Nathan, and Nathan told King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I believe that they're talking about Jesus. I believe that God told Nathan that from your loins, divinely, Jesus will someday come and will fulfill that promise. Now we live in a time of tension between the already and have not. And in this time, we know that Jesus has indeed conquered death. He has been in the grave and has defeated death by rising again. So in one sense, Jesus has fully and completely annihilated the effects of sin. But that tension still exists because, as I said earlier, in this world we have decay and sorrow and sadness. So this distinction between Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus, the son of David, is vitally important. Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the son of Joseph. He was indeed a carpenter, and that would have been the common way to refer to him. If you were on the road, who's that man you're talking about? Jesus of Nazareth. But when the blind man said, Jesus, son of David, he revealed a sense of intimacy and knowing exactly who the Christ was. Declaring Jesus to be the son of David declared him to be heir to the throne. And he had insight into the man, the nature, and the purpose. I would argue that the blind man received special revelation. At the very minimum, this blind man hoped that Jesus would be something greater than just a man from Nazareth. But I believe that this blind man proclaimed a statement of faith. What is it that you believe about Jesus? Have you ever been pressed 
to verbalize? What is it that you believe about Jesus? And the limitation of a sermon is that I don't get to sit down with you face to face and push you to say what you believe about Jesus. Have you formed your theology? Is Jesus just a good man, a good teacher from Nazareth? Is he an angel from heaven, as some world religions would say? Is he just one of the many different paths to reach heaven? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and sits upon an eternal throne? And if you tell me that you believe something, I would next press further and say, how do you put that belief into practice? The difference between knowing, believing, and doing is very relevant in our world today. At work, there are times when I need to just put on the happy face and make sure that everybody gets along. When I hear people say a false theology, I feel like this tension where I just have to, ah, even if I don't believe it. Do you find that too? The danger is, however, when you continue to just put on that uh, happy face and kind of agree with the crowd, you fail, really, in crying out for that truth. You allow that cry of truth to be suppressed because of the context of your crowd. My suggestion is this. Do you feel a sense of emboldenness, powered by love and grace, to quietly say, I still believe that Jesus is God. I still believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And it's hard. I know it's hard. But crying out is part of what this story is all about. Crying out to the Lord of the universe to give you strength is indeed possible. You know on Sunday that you're going to face a context during the week that will seek to oppress and keep quiet some of your beliefs. You know that on Sunday you are going to face situations during the week that will look to minimize your condition. But this blind beggar did not keep silent because the cost of keeping silent, well, meant that he would continue in blindness. The cost of you keeping silent could be spiritual blindness for other people and even yourself. Parents, this is uh, partially where I get to talk to you. Do you know that um, you can cry out to the Lord of the universe 
and ask for help with your kids? Do you know that the Lord God is not too busy to hear your prayers? Daily, I have a kind of a routine where I try to, and it's not perfect, I try to pray specific prayer every day, and I, I won't divulge what that prayer is, but every day I try to. And there are days that I just get frustrated. I'm like, God, I don't see your hand moving. I pray the same thing, and I'm wondering what's going on. Come on, God. And I get frustrated. And that sense of frustration would lead me to want to be quiet and pull back. But that's not what this text is telling us. Keep pressing in. Keep moving on. So parents, sometimes I hear from you that, well, I feel like God's kind of busy to hear this prayer of importance. It's kind of a small thing. Well, your kids are going to pick up on that. Celebrate with your kids whenever they have a small request too. Sometimes that small request is, um, I'd like to pray for my Legos. That's okay. (laughs) With discernment, invite your children into your prayers and into your prayer life so that they would learn and know what it is to cry out to God. Allow them to see that you are accessible and that God is accessible. Now we'll go even further. Invite your children to know that we live in a complicated, mixed-up world where things are not fair. Let them know that there are times that you struggle and invite your kids to pray with you about those matters. They don't need to be 18, be prepared to leave the house, and then not know how to pray when life is hard. Invite them into your prayer time. Allow them to know that you have big decisions to make and that you will be asking Jesus for wisdom. That's so important in today's context because the world wants us to be silent. Look again at verse 39. And those who were in the front rebuked this blind man. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Why is that? And who's in the front? Luke doesn't actually tell us who's in the front, but in the eyes of of this crowd, the blind beggar had limitations that would only prove to be a burden to their agenda. Now, the men in front, the people in front, They were quietly saying, we have more important things to do. We have very influential people here. We have no need of your cries for mercy. This is a little side note. Our congregation is made up of very influential people. Our congregation is made up of people who have run businesses. They're doctors. They're... They're involved with Congress. Our our congregation is like type A and able to do all kinds of different things. You're leaders. Our congregation is made up of 
all of you, and you have influence upon others, no matter where you see yourself on the scale, I can sit down with each one of you and say, you have influence. As leaders, you're in the front. Be mindful of your agenda because your agenda may be opposed to God's grace that is ready to work. So this text just said that those who are in front try to, try to suppress the opportunity for grace. We have an agenda. We've got, we've got places to go. We're going into Jerusalem. Don't you know the text? We're going to do some big and amazing things there. We don't have time for what? Grace? Mercy? Um, you should feel a sense of tension throughout your week as you try to work that balance between being productive and being merciful. So uh, a couple hours every week, I work as a hospice chaplain. Um, it's my other job, which allows me to do this, I guess. Um, as a hospice chaplain, it's very easy for me to sit down with people and they want to talk. They want to know that God is gracious, that God is merciful. And it's very easy for me to do. But there is a demand of the clock that says, Dean, you still have to be productive. And thankfully, my boss is after me. Dean, I need you to keep being productive. There's that tension there. If you lived in one camp or the other, you would not exist in that tension. And we need that tension on this side of heaven. Because if you went to one side and you were all about getting things done, you would miss the aspect of mercy, the opportunity to provide grace in a very tangible way. But on the other end, if all you did was just sit down with, with one person and hold their hand all the time, wait, you still have responsibility over much. So you have to live in that tension. And I don't know what it looks like if, if you're an engineer and your boss is saying, I need you to be productive. I don't know what it looks like. Maybe it's a quick email that you send to a coworker that says, brother, I don't know why you came to my mind today, but I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Cry out to God on someone's behalf. I don't know what it looks like if, if you are... A homeschool mom. That's one of the most important and hardest jobs out there. If you're a homeschool mom, you have to get things done, and yet you have precious children who say, but mom, guys, I'm homeschool moms, I'm praying for you. I'm not looking at you right now on purpose. Living in that tension doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong, but perhaps you're doing something right because you're seeking the will of God in a world that is broken and yet we want the kingdom of God to enter fully into this time. It's okay to feel that tension, but even as you feel that tension, know that it's better to cry out all the more. 
when the voices outside are saying, be silent, be quiet, just go along with what the crowd says, that's when it's time to step up even more. And that's what this text is all about. What, what verse is that? 39. And those who were in front rebuked the blind man, telling him to be silent. But the blind man cried out all the more. And in Greek, it's like with more emphasis and even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Competing with the crowd to be heard. Are you willing to be overheard by the crowd? When someone says that there's many paths to heaven, are you willing to be heard? The president of Wheaton College commented on, his, on this verse. His name is Philip Riken. The lesson is easy to do, easy to apply. Do not keep quiet, but cry out for deliverance until Jesus himself brings you to salvation. There will always be some friends and family members who try to discourage you from calling on Jesus by faith. But be persistent. Keep crying out for salvation the way the blind man did until by the word of God you receive your spiritual sight. Then keep crying out for anything and everything that you need. Jesus is listening by the Holy Spirit. And he loves to hear the prayers of the needy. Jesus Christ has mercy for sinners. If you pray with persistent faith, he will not pass you by. Jesus is not too busy helping others to help you. He will stop in the middle of the road to save you. Cry out to Jesus, as the song goes. I don't know what your need is today. I'm reminded again that it can be very physical. It can be a physical need. It can be for salvation. Maybe everything that I'm saying just doesn't Kind of, it just doesn't fully make sense, but you feel like the Spirit is, is talking to you and you feel like you need Jesus. This can be your morning where you cry out to Jesus and you just say simply, Jesus, I need you. It doesn't need to be eloquent. I need you. Has there been a lingering sin? Something that you've struggled with? Father, forgive me. What I'm saying is cry out. Father, forgive me. I don't know what I'm doing at times. And just yesterday... We were reminded again where the rubber meets the road. The death of a loved one. You're not Jordan. But it's okay if you cry out to Jesus on Jordan's behalf. 
His dad just died. And my heart breaks for Max and for his mom and dad. A little boy that small and precious should not have a tumor. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. My last point is this. And because I work with children, this is the point that made the most sense to my heart during the week. No matter how small or how insignificant you feel your voice is, there is a God whose ear is bent towards you. What Luke was pointing at was a sense of significance in terms of like importance during the day, of being able to get things done. This man in this text was a blind beggar. Well, maybe we don't have someone in here that is a blind beggar. But our society would say that there are people who are important and there are people who are not important or not as important. And this is where I'm talking to our children too. Your voice is important. Cry out to Jesus. And we see when we look at verse 43 that there's a change, a change that takes place. When a man cries out by faith and grace is applied to the situation, what happens in verse 43? I'll read it again. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. So what happens when an act of faith meets an act of grace? People are led to a place of worship. And that's how I'm going to choose to end. Because an act of of faith make space for grace in your life and in the lives of others. So let me indeed pray right now. Join me in prayer. Father God, we have looked at and analyzed in one sense the process and means by which Jesus healed a blind beggar. But allow us to praise you for the mercy that Jesus continues to show to us sinners. That you do not identify us as sinners, but as your beloved children. For indeed, your mercy is renewed day by day. Your grace is freely given to those who request it by faith. So let us live in that tension where we are dependent upon your mercy. We cry out in faith for things to be different. Meet us where we're at. In the name of Christ, amen.